resurrection. And so we thank you for how you reveal your truth about that uh, through your creation. We thank you, Father, for um, mothers. We thank you uh, for those sitting in this room who are mothers. And we pray a blessing over them today that you would give them strength and wisdom in how they um, should love the, the children that you have blessed them with, Father. We pray for those um, who are maybe uh, struggling today, who uh, have experienced loss uh, in, in this last season of a, of a mother or a loss of a dream um, associated with that. And we pray, Lord, that you would be close to those who, um, who are struggling today. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you entered this world and so you know the joys and heartache um, that we experience. We pray as we turn our attention to talking about you, Jesus, and the centrality of your life to our lives, that you would open up our eyes to see um, more of who you are this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, we're going to start with a, uh, a bold statement that maybe doesn't seem to be a bold statement in, in a church context, but it's this, okay? Jesus Christ is the most important, influential, and attractive person who has ever lived. And his life stands at the centerpiece of history now and through eternity. We'll talk a little bit about what Jesus said about himself, but before we get there, consider just a few facts about Jesus Christ that every person in the entire world would agree with. Number one, time is dated after him. Okay, that is like not bad, okay, if that's your legacy in history. Um, Time is divided into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. In a lot of current history classes, we've changed that to B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. doesn't matter what you call it. It's still centered around the person of Jesus Christ. So when you uh, write a check, uh, no one does that anymore, you're paying homage to Jesus. When you celebrate the class of 2023, which will happen soon, uh, yard signs and this kind of thing, we'll see them in the, in the yards. You're giving props to Jesus. It's been 2,023 years since he was born. When you watch the ball drop, no one does that anymore. But into a new year, you're celebrating Jesus in some way, uh, whether, whether you know it or not, okay? How about this about Jesus? Do you like to sing corporately with groups of people? Maybe some of you do, like if you are going to Taylor Swift next weekend or something like that. Like, maybe you enjoy that. Like, I am a bad singer. And every week, I gather with groups of people and sing for 20 minutes uh, to Jesus. And actually, there's millions of people around the world that are singing songs corporately to Jesus. Like, that isn't really happening for other people throughout history, okay? Um, and in fact, in honor of Jesus, there's been more books written, more buildings built, more humanitarian efforts launched than any person in human history. Last thing that we would, every person would agree on is, is that people, people use his name to swear as a swear word, okay? And so people don't stub their toe and say, Bjorn Anderson. Like, they, they use his name, we're commanded not to, but because there's power in his name. Um, I've shared these quotes before, but I think they're good ones um, about the person of Jesus that I want us to consider. Here's a quote from Napoleon Bonaparte, okay, who says this, okay? I know men, 
And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius upon force? Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. Napoleon, a very famous person in history, had like a complicated relationship with Jesus towards the end of his life, was almost obsessed with Jesus, wrote a lot about him, hard to know exactly what he believed, but recognized that he, Napoleon, as one of the most important people who ever lived, paled in comparison to Jesus Christ. Um, Less known than Napoleon, but a, a, a neat uh, theologian is this guy, John Flavel, who uh, was a theologian hundreds of years ago. And he says this, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures, the very soul and substance of them. As all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is congregation or meeting place of all waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. His excellencies are pure and unmixed. He is a sea of sweetness without one drop of gall. Flavel makes a bold statement that just as rivers flow into an ocean, they find their source or substance in an ocean, that all of the joys that we experience in life, the things we look forward to, whether that's a golf match, the Celtics game, a good burger we're going to eat, is actually pointing to the ultimate desire we have of Jesus Christ. It's a bold statement. Most people maybe would not agree with that, but it's an interesting statement about who Jesus is. So others have made bold claims about Jesus. History makes bold claims about Jesus. Jesus himself made bold claims about Jesus. I think throughout history, there's been this movement that we like Jesus, but don't worship him. So it's like Jesus gets turned into almost like a, like a, uh, kind of like this wise life guru, like a, like a, just a nice guy with a really good podcast or something like that. But um, Jesus was kind and gentle, but he made claims about himself that if they're not true, would not make him a kind and gentle and wise person, right? So Jesus regularly walked around saying things like this. Here's, a, here's some examples of some bold things that Jesus said. Um, they come up on the screen, great, if not, no problem. But Jesus walked around, he said, hey, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. He forgave people their sins, a, a, a task reserved for God. He said, I and the Father are one. To a group of Jewish people who were like staunchly monotheistic, worshiping God the Father as the one true God, he said, yeah, I'm the same person as that. Then he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You want to know what truth is? We're battling about what truth is in all political spheres. Jesus is saying, I'm the truth. You don't come to God except through me. That's like a bold claim. Okay, And these are statements that if they're wrong, Jesus is at worst a liar. I'm sorry, at best a liar. At worst, he's dangerous. Um, John Stott, famous British pastor, wrote a book called Basic Christianity, and he has this to say about Jesus in comparison to other religious leaders. John Stott says this, they, other religious leaders, are self-effacing. He, Jesus, is self-advancing. They point away from themselves and say, this is the truth so far as I perceive it, follow that. Jesus says, I am the truth, follow me. 
the founder of none of the ethnic religions has dared to say such a thing. So Jesus himself makes bold statements. And this morning we're turning our attention, as Luke mentioned uh, in his leading of our time of singing so well, we're turning our attention to the fourth article in the Evangelical Free Church of America Statement of Faith, which is about the person of Jesus Christ. So a question for all of us as we start to unpack who Jesus is, is what is the status of your relationship with Jesus Christ? What is the status of your relationship with Jesus Christ this morning? We read the statement of faith earlier, but I'm going to put it up on the screen again and have us look at it. I'll read it. You don't have to read it responsibly, but it's worth seeing it again. This is statement four of the EFCA statement of faith. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Jesus, Israel's promised Messiah, was conceived through the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God the Father as our high priest and advocate. All right, I'm going to sum up this, this statement of faith for you with a math equation. The math equation is this. We'll put it up on the screen if we have a chance, okay? 100% human plus 100% God equals 100% Jesus. That is so cheesy and so true. Take it to the bank, okay? I heard this when I was in middle school. When I think about Jesus, I remember this equ equation, okay, that the statement of faith has broken down in a lot more theological and beautiful language. But this is our guide, like what we're sort of our outline for the rest of the time. We're going to talk about the fact that Jesus was fully human and what that means for us and that he was fully God and what that means for us, okay? 100% human plus 100% God equals 100% Jesus. It's beautiful. Completely uh, makes the Christian faith totally distinct from any other faith systems in the world. So first off, Jesus is fully human. It means a lot of things, but let me share a few with you. First off, it means this. In Jesus, God tangibly entered human history. Two competing realities in, uh, about God, okay? One, God has been entering human history since he created the world. God is a God who desires to enter human history because he created human history. The second competing reality is that God can be abstract. Like you see like every, I don't know, few years, NASA launches a new telescope and it's like there's new galaxies and things that are like, they have like amazing stats about how far away these things are. When you see that, I think it's logical to believe there's something larger than us but it might also feel like, how in the world would I ever know what that thing is, identify with that thing? So it's like sort of this competing reality. But in the person of Jesus, God chose to enter human history in the same way that you and I did, born of a woman, born with a human body in a certain time and space. Now I should say that Jesus did not start to exist when he was born on this earth. Jesus existed from all time as the second person of the Trinity in perfect unity with God the Father and God the Spirit. But when he was born, God did enter this human sphere in a radical way. The theological way to say this, which the statement of faith says, is that Jesus is God incarnate. Use this word, incarnate. The word incarnate 
comes from a root word, carne, C-A-R-N-E, carne. I think it's Spanish, might be Swedish, but it means meat. It means meat, okay, like chili con carne, chili with meat. It means to put some flesh on the bones in the way that you might, you're like talking about this idea that's abstract, and you say, let me flesh that out for you. It means you're going to give a little more description about that. In a negative way, you could use the word incarnate to say, you could say Hitler is evil incarnate. Evil is sort of this abstract idea. What is it? If we look at Hitler and his life, that sort of shows us what evil is like. In a beautiful way, we say Jesus is God incarnate. God is sort of abstract and big. If we want to know a little bit or more about what God is like, we can look to the life of Jesus. Really powerfully, in a wonderful verse, in John 1.14, we read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word, word, capital W, is a Greek word, logos, which is sort of like the the wisdom, beauty, and knowledge of the created God, this sort of abstract thing becomes flesh, takes on flesh in the person of Jesus. The message, which is a different translation, almost a paraphrase, says this. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. In Jesus, God moved into your neighborhood, the neighborhood of humanity. This um, is a beautiful thing. We also believe that Jesus is historical, not mythological. Okay? The statement of faith affirms this. The statement of faith mentions Pontius Pilate. It's interesting. He's a Roman-appointed governor of Judea where Jesus lived. There's archaeological records of his life that people could unearth. It means Jesus is anchored in history. There's four uh, accounts of Jesus' life in Luke, who was, this, was a noted historian and physician. He starts off the account of Jesus' life this way. Just look at all the references to history. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. This is like the pre- preamble to Jesus' birth. Seven references to historically verifiable places that you could go today. Or, well, five references and two references to people who are like historical figures. It's like rooted in history. Totally different than all the um, other like creation myths and that kind of thing that we might read. Jesus was a historical figure who entered history the same way that you and I did. I also should say that he did not enter where he entered by accident. He was Israel's promised Messiah. It says that in the statement of faith. And Jesus chose to be born as a Jewish person in a backwater country occupied by a cruel superpower. Jesus was born as a marginalized person into a marginalized culture. Doesn't mean that marginalized people are superior, but I think it means that Jesus identifies with marginalized people in a sort of unique way. 
I frequently wonder if Jesus would feel more comfortable if he lived today in a homeless population or an AIDS orphanage than in a room like this, although he'd be equally comfortable in both. But he did choose to be, to be born to a position of, of not a lot of privilege, power, or wealth. In addition to being historical, the fact that he's 100% human means he gets us. He gets what it's like to live your life. When Jesus walked around on earth, he experienced everything you experienced. Here's a sampling of some of the things that Jesus experienced, okay? He got tired. John 4, 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. This is the opening to a beautiful interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well, where he talks about the living water. But it starts because he's tired. So he needs to sit down so he knows what it's like to be tired. Jesus got hungry. In Matthew chapter 4, we read a mysterious and powerful account of Jesus being tempted by Satan, and it says this, after fasting 40 days and nights, he was hungry. There's some parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. This is Captain Obvious. He fasted 40 days and nights, and he was hungry, of course, but it means he understands like what it means to be hungry, as humans did. He also faced temptation. Matthew 4.1, just before this, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. As human beings, we get tempted by all kinds of things. Frequently, we give in to those temptations. Jesus, may, Jesus probably knows temptation even more fuller than we did because he never gave in to the temptation. He lived a sinless life, but he understands what it's like to be tempted. He also experienced deep grief and sadness. One of his closest friends, Lazarus, dies, and Jesus shows up at his funeral. And he's talking to the sisters, and it says this, when Jesus saw her, who's Mary, Lazarus' sister, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus wept. If you're looking for some scripture memory to do this summer, John 11:35, Jesus wept is a great verse to start with. It's also a really profound truth that Jesus understands sorrow and pain and sadness. He also experienced anxiety and emotional turmoil. The night before he died, he prayed to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we read this about Jesus. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus experienced anxiety. He knew what was happening the next day, that he was going to have to die a horrific death. And we could go on, and we could describe how Jesus experienced anger at injustice. He experienced rejection and betrayal from friends, that he experienced joy and laughter. But here's the point, is Jesus gets your life, all of it. Jesus is God with us. You ever had someone say to you or said someone to you, like you've, you've had a tough thing going on, someone says to you like, hey, I'm, I'm with you. It's a nice sentiment, okay? But then have you ever had somebody who has like walked a similar road that you've walked and they say, hey, I'm with you? It means something a little different. About a year and a half ago, my father died. Um, and many people said to me, hey, I'm with you. Sent cards, reached out, prayed for me. It was awesome. 
But a few people sat down or talked to me, and they had also lost their father. And when we sat down, they said, hey, I'm with you. It meant something a little different. Not that the other sentiments weren't valuable, but it, they, they had walked the road that I'd walked. Maybe you've had a, a cancer diagnosis or depression or a hard situation with your family, and you talk to somebody who's also walked that, and they say, hey, I know what that's like, and it like really means something different. That is how we can approach God through Jesus. Because he's, walk, he's, he's walked the stuff we've walked. So when we pray to God about anxiety or pain or sadness, he's experienced it as well in the person of Jesus. There's no other faith system that offers that beauty and profound withness. I have a friend that says frequently, Jesus' witness is his withness. So Jesus is 100% human. But friends, he's more than that. He's also 100% God. And that is really good news for us. Because here's the thing, we do need someone to identify with us, but more than that, we need someone to save us. Last week, Brendan did a great job talking about Article 3 of the Statement of Faith, which is about the human condition of of sinfulness, and Brendan did this, did this great job describing that human beings are simultaneously created in God's image with incredible capacity for good, but also full of sin and incredible capacity for evil. Frankly, I don't know of a biblical doctrine that makes more sense as you just walk around this world than this. Human beings are awesome and awful. You don't need the Bible to tell you that, that human beings are awesome and awful. You don't need the Bible to tell you that you are awesome and awful. Because we live it. It's Mother's Day. Some of us have awesome mothers. The sacrificial love that my mom gave to me images who God is to me. It's amazing. You watch some of the heroic things that human beings do, it's unbelievable. We're just, we're commemorating or remembering like the 10 year anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. And I just remember hearing like there's bombs went off and people are running into a bomb target to rescue and pull people out. That's the image of God in them. Whether they know it or not, human beings are amazing. But then you turn on the news and you're like, what the heck? Human beings are the worst. <laughs> like, there's mass shootings every day. There's broken families. The world is a mess. Like, we heard this week about going around the middle school where videos of people being murdered, their kids are watching on social media. What the heck? Why is this even happening? Human beings are awful. And then when you look deep into your heart, you might not have murdered someone. If you did, you're actually in good company with people in the Bible, but uh, we hope you didn't. But, if, but you probably have stuff in your heart that's like, whoa, that's pretty messed up. Like Brendan used the example, if you put all your thoughts up on the screen for all of us to watch and consume, man, we'd be wrecked. So we're kind of like amazing and awful. And the Bible tells us we need a rescue from that condition. We need more than someone who can just come alongside us and identify, we need a rescue from that condition. Last week, Brendan used this scripture from Romans chapter seven, verses 24 and 25 says this, 
Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. If Jesus was only a human, he couldn't offer us the rescue and salvation we needed. Because our sin is against God himself. So, so it's God we have offended, and only God himself could can offer a solution, take away our sin, and this happens through the sacrificial death of Jesus. I'm going to quote three different verses from the book of Hebrews, which is a great book sort of all about this. If you're looking for something to read in the scriptures, maybe you feel the Bible's kind of dry, like open up Hebrews, read Hebrews, give that a shot. It's a, it's a great book. Um, I heard of someone once, I don't know if it actually happened, that like for a sermon, instead of preaching a sermon, literally just read the whole book of Hebrews and then sat down. It's like, eh, it's probably not going to be a sermon better than this, so I decided not to do that. Uh, but anyways, uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, say this, starting off, okay? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. There is so much cool stuff in that three verses right there. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. He helped create the world. This book's going to be all about him, okay? Then move on to chapter 2, and we start to see how Jesus rescues, offers us a rescue from sin. Because God's children, this is Hebrews 2, 14, and then verse 17, because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. See, before Jesus, there were high priests that offered sacrifices to take away people's sin. In our day and age, people don't really go to priests anymore, but we do different things to get rid of our sin or guilt. Brendan talked about this last week as well. Probably the main thing we do is compare ourselves to others. I feel bad about myself. Oh, I'm better than that person. And that like sort of helps take away our guilt or our sin. But the thing about the high priest, the priests, is that they always had a job. They had great job security, okay, because there were always more sins. And the, pre and the, the sacrifice only temporarily took away the guilt of the sin. And when we compare ourselves to others, it sort of only temporarily takes away the guilt, and it doesn't take away the sin at all. Jesus' death alone takes away our sin. In two weeks, when we pick the sermon series back up again, Sam's going to talk about Jesus, more about the, the work of Jesus on the cross, not just the person of him, but what it actually means. But final quote from Hebrews Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, we read this. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, 
offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. But our high priest, that's Jesus, offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus isn't just a model for how to live a good life, although he certainly is that. He is the sacrifice that makes it so we can be reconnected to God. And if he was not fully God and a sinless person, he would not be able to offer that sacrifice. So sin would still be left unpaid for. In that, even in that verse, and also in Hebrews 1, it talks a few times about how Jesus sat down. Interesting, because in the Old Testament, when the temple was built, there was a lot of things in the temple, but there weren't chairs, because the priests were never allowed to like sit down, because metaphorically their work was always going. They always had to keep sacrificing more and more. Jesus' sacrifice was complete, paid for all sins, so he could sit down. Like, hey, I'm just chilling because I paid for that sin. So here's a question for you is what is your high priest? Like, where do you look for right standing in the world or before God? Is it your own deeds, your goodness, your something, or is it Jesus? He alone can be our high priest. So as we close, I started with a question of like, what's the status of your relationship with Jesus? You know, um, as we re when you read the life stories of Jesus in the Bible, the Gospels, the most common, one of the most common things he said to people was two words, follow me. It's one of the most common things that Jesus says. What are you following in your life? Where is it taking you? What are you spending your time thinking about? Where are you following? Are you following Jesus? Maybe today you want to begin to follow him for the first time. Maybe you realize you need Jesus to identify with you fully as a human and you need him to rescue you as fully God. If you, if you would consider or want to consider following Jesus for the first time, please come talk to me. We're going to have people under the chalkboard who could pray with you. Talk to someone who brought you. No greater choice you can make with your life. Maybe you are a follower of Jesus and it's, maybe it's going great, maybe it's not, maybe it's kind of lame or it's grown cold or feels weird. Like, what could you do to grow as a follower of Jesus? A few thoughts, I would encourage you to read about his life. Spend time with him by reading about him. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are historical accounts of Jesus' life. Maybe just spend, spend some time reading about him. We don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus. But we really have very little information about Jesus apart from the Bible. So the two do work together closely. And maybe you need to rekindle your love of Jesus by opening up the Bible, reading about his life. Is there an area where you would like to grow more as a follower of Jesus to be more like him? Are there people that don't know Jesus, that you could talk to about what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe some people you could start praying for. You know, we started this scripture, uh, Sandra read Colossians 1 as our um, call to worship. Colossians 1 is a be it's beautiful. Like a lot of people think it was maybe an early hymn, 
that early Christians sang to Jesus. Paul writes it. And so what I'm, I'd like us to stand and read it together to close our service, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, in just a minute. And it, uh, we're going to put it up on the screen. It's, it says he a number of times being Jesus, but I took out the word he and replaced it with Jesus. So read it with me um, as a final benediction for who the person of Jesus is. Will you stand with me? And then I'll pray to close. So we'll read, read this together. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. Will you pray with me? Father, thanks so much that you created this world. 